You're listening to the Warrior Priest Podcast. And this is the Warrior Priest Podcast. Midweek debrief number 113. And I am the Warrior Priest, Donovan Riley. Welcome back to the show, everybody. As always, thank you so much for your time and attention today. Otherwise, without getting into merch and or the thank yous that I owe to so many of you, we're going to dive right into The Warrior's Path by Daniel Bellelli today, because my time is not my own today, so I want to get through as much of the introduction or finish the introduction so that we can move on into the book. So that being said, I ended on page four of the book last episode, so I'm going to pick up there and hopefully get all the way through the introduction like I said. That being said then, first of all, thank you. For everybody that gave me feedback on the last episode, that was very encouraging to know that so many of you enjoyed that. I appreciate that. And let's get into it then. On the Warrior's Path, Philosophy, Fighting, and Martial Arts Mythology by Daniel Bellelli. He writes, in martial arts circles, as well as in popular culture, the concept of the way of the warrior is the subject of much hype. The idea underlying it views martial arts not simply as methods to break bones, but as paths for self-perfection and character building. The word warrior, however, is employed in so many fields, besides its original, somewhat bloody context, with so many different meanings attached to it, that it is hard to use it without sounding foolish. And yet, the sometimes misguided popularity of the quote-unquote warrior idea shows how powerful it is as an archetype. It speaks of beautiful qualities which are as rare as pygmy basketball players, a willpower that can't be broken, the discipline to transform dreams into reality, the ability to get up with one's confidence unshaken after being knocked down countless times, the commitment to fight, not just for one's personal goals, but for everything and everyone deserving help. The warrior does not simply talk about, quote, how things should be, but acts in a way to make them happen. Being a warrior means having the strength and the passion to follow one's visions. When I originally read William uh, Pressfield's book, right, uh, The Warrior Ethos, which is a series of aphorisms or vignettes, however you want to phrase it, by Stephen Pressfield, it turned me on to the broader horizon of the word warrior and the warrior ethos, that it is not confined simply to a finite group of select individuals, whether they be in special operations, law enforcement, first responders, but that there is a specific group whose vocation it is to wage war, to engage in war fighting. They are war fighters. But that is an ever-dwindling group within our society in the United States. But the broader philosophical, intellectual, even academic understanding of an ethos, a culture, a community, a communion that share similar goals that are provoked, as he says, by a particular not just idea, but archetype. That there's something more to this term warrior that is now, especially in the last three years, in my hearing of it, become abused. It's like the word savage. People will say that sometimes. I'm a savage, especially in the gym. I'm just a savage. Eh, I don't think you are. 
I think the archetype appeals to you, but you live in an apartment or a townhome or a condo or a house. You have a backyard. You live in a cul-de-sac. You're married with children. You're a stockbroker, a teacher, a janitor, an engineer. You are not a savage. You are not squatting around the fire, eating the entrails of a goat (laughs) to survive. You're not gearing up to wage war against the neighboring village tomorrow in the jungle. So what do we really mean then when we apply these terms, when we appeal to these archetypes of warrior, savage, fighter even? And as he notes, I think that's the key is that especially nowadays where so many men are emasculated from birth, our testosterone levels are half of what they were just three generations ago. We are fed estrogen-rich products day after day after day. We are poisoned with them. We are chemically and nutritionally castrated as men. And I don't believe this is a coincidence. I don't believe this is an accident. If it had happened to a small group of people, if a small, specific, particular group of people was targeted, we might argue, okay, There's an intent behind this. There's a trajectory. This group is being targeted by these corporations or by this regime or by these groups. But masculinity, not just as a concept, as an idea, but masculinity as a reality, what makes a man man masculine, what makes men masculine, has been under attack, well, since the 50s even. And it's been step by step, year by year, decade by decade of emasculation, social castration, chemical and nutritional castration, like I said. Targeting men, I believe, in order to destroy masculinity in our culture and therefore to destroy any appeal that the warrior ethos might have for boys in particular. It's all right to have a small sector of the population engage in the vocation of warfighter. We need war fighters. We need law enforcement. We need first responders within our society, within our culture. These are institutions. But we don't want people getting the idea, especially young boys, we don't want them getting the idea that growing up to become a warrior or at the very least embrace a warrior ethos is a virtuous path. In fact, what we can do actually through Hollywood through programming, through education, through nutrition, through culture, is we can actually indoctrinate that out of young boys in particular. We can castrate them. We can emasculate them so that they grow up thinking that having a testosterone level of three to 500 nanograms per unit is acceptable. That having a dad bod is acceptable. It's just the way it is. That allowing the wife to do everything in the marriage and for the family is acceptable up to the point that the wife has to be responsible for protecting and defending the family because the man cannot. Everything that is traditional, everything that is time-tested, that has come to be known as masculinity in the last 70 or 80 years has been attacked, has been degraded, and driven us to deprivation as men. 
And therefore, the appeal in the present tense, I think, for this warrior ethos, this appeal that it has for young men in particular, is because in our society, mediocrity is celebrated. Vice is celebrated as a virtue. Anti-heroes are everywhere. And heroes are denigrated, insulted, torn down and replaced, gender swapped, as we see constantly now in Hollywood. And what do young boys, what do young men do then? Where are they to go? What are they to attach themselves to? What tribe, what group, what unit are they going to join? What are they going to be a part of when they're isolated and they're alone and they're medicated and they're on SSRIs and they're fatherless and they're cut off from others? What's going to happen to them is that they're going to break loose. They're going to act out often violently. They're easily predicted, their behavior, and therefore they're easily manipulated. Which is why we see this pathology among school shooters, similar age group, similar mental state, similar family state, similar social state, isolated, alone, fatherless, medicated on SSRIs, marginalized, disenfranchised, groomed, programmed, indoctrinated, until finally they see no way out except to explode in violence. And all it takes is a small provocation from the right person at the right time to set them off. And so in my opinion, school shootings, mass shootings, and the similarities that they all share in common is something that we don't want to address. It's not addressed by the media, by local, state, or federal government officials, because we don't have a gun problem in this country. I was talking with someone who is my elder last night. Even when I was in high school and he was in high school, we brought guns to school for gun safety training. It was a part of our Phi Ed curriculum. Most of the boys that I went to high school with had gun racks in their trucks and cars. They had guns in the school parking lot throughout the day. When we would get in fights in high school, not a single person ever went to their car or their truck to get a gun or a knife. We fought with our fists. One person won, one person lost. That's the way it was done. None of us ever thought to get a gun and start shooting at people. It wasn't even in the conversation. And yet within a generation, it's normalized. And we have to ask, why? How did this become normalized? What are the social conditions that have led to this state? And I think that's just it. What we don't want to acknowledge as a society is that for generations now, we have attacked metaphysics, that is God, and metaphysical concepts, principles such as love, morality, virtue and vice, bravery, courage, kindness, justice, all of these principles that we ask, where does this sense of charity and the sense of right and wrong and the sense of morality, where do all these principles, where do they originate from? We don't deal in objective reality anymore. We deal in subjective, pre-packaged, and programmed reality now. In fact, in the 21st century, as of June 1st, 2022, if there's anything that describes society in the United States, it is that we are in a flight away from objective reality. And the more that we reject objective reality, the more that we run away from it and try to redefine objective reality according to our personal taste buds, the more violent 
you're going to see society become, the more savage it will actually become. Because what is the foundation for the social contract? Do we agree on good and evil, right and wrong? Do we agree what virtue is versus vice? Do we agree that there are heroes and there are villains, there's good and there's evil? No. Everything is flipped upside down and backwards now. Villains are celebrated as heroes. And heroes, as I said, are denigrated and torn down and replaced with villains. We don't have that ethos anymore built into our society. It's not the foundation from which we work as fathers, as sons, as men. And therefore, that throws everything out of whack, which is then what throws the family out of whack. So that fathers don't accept their responsibility in their vocation as father and husband. And therefore, the wife can't accept and acknowledge her duty and responsibility within her vocation as wife and mother. And everything gets thrown out of whack. And once it's thrown out of whack and there's not a partnership and husband and wife don't complement each other within the family, then the family disintegrates. The family is denigrated, which of course is all designed by the state and then enacted through its proxies in the mass media and in Hollywood. So we attack God, we attack metaphysics, we attack good and evil, right and wrong, virtue and vice. We attack the family, the society of society. And then we end up with all of these emasculated, socially castrated young men who have nothing to belong to, no father figure, no one to protect and defend them as they mature and become young men. And then we wonder why so many are lost, why so many seek out mentors like Jocko Willink or Jordan Peterson or even Joe Rogan. It's because we have no philosophical or theological foundation from which to work. We don't push young boys and even little girls to learn self-defense, to learn self-confidence, to think, to be curious, to explore and go on adventures, both intellectually and in the world. And now since 2020, we've been taught that, of course, anybody that you meet can kill you. And therefore, we need to isolate. We need to stay separate. We cannot engage in communion with each other, be in community, in conversation. So it happens over Zoom. It happens over the phone. It happens over the internet and social media, which is a disembodied community and therefore not a community. We are not made to exist as disembodied personalities for other people. We are meant to live face to face, flesh to flesh, bone to bone with each other, to converse with each other not just in words, not just over the internet or over the phone, but in person. And that too now has been driven away from us, taken from us. And so many have accepted that now as the quote-unquote new normal, that we're fragmented, we're atomized, which just further contributes to the destruction of society and family and objective reality. I think the solution, of course, and that's why I'm reading this book and talking about this, is that we as fathers in particular have to step up and recover our vocation as protector and defender of the family. We need to train our bodies and our minds in violence so that we can engage in peace. Because as has become popularized now, especially by Jordan Peterson, when Jesus says the meek shall inherit the earth, that was falsely interpreted to mean those who are wallflowers, those who are doormats, those who are oppressed and walked over and victimized by others. It doesn't mean that at all in the original Koine Greek. A meek person is a warrior 
who knows how to use his sword and his spear and his shield effectively, but he chooses to keep it sheathed. I actually talked about this when I read the Hagakurei, and we'll go back to that eventually again, but a samurai doesn't draw his sword for no reason. He doesn't draw his sword to threaten or to show that he's a warrior. A samurai draws his sword to draw blood. Think of that in the present tense. If I draw my pistol, am I drawing it to intimidate and threaten you? Am I drawing it to show you that I have a gun and you don't? If I do that, I have violated the basic protocols of gun safety. Never draw your weapon or point your weapon at another person unless you intend to pull the trigger. And if you intend to pull the trigger, that means you intend to kill. So it still is there. There are still meek men within our society. It just makes up a smaller and smaller group of individuals. But to train our sons and our daughters how to be meek means that we first have to train them in violence. We first have to train them in how to defend themselves and therefore how to defend others. But along with that training, I believe, and this is the philosophy side of martial arts, we train them also in charity and justice and kindness and courage and bravery and virtue and righteousness and wisdom and temperance. We train them that the weapon is a tool. And a tool can be used for both good and evil purposes. It depends on the individual who is wielding that tool. More youth are killed every year in car accidents, drunk driving accidents, than by guns in mass shootings. More youth are killed every year by knives than are killed by guns in mass shootings. But I don't see anyone arguing to ban cars. And all of those youth that were killed in drunk driving accidents were drunk, but they were underage, so how do they get alcohol? We know how this ethic works. We know how this argument works. We know how it ends. The war on drugs did not stop people from getting drugs. The war on alcohol, prohibition, didn't stop people from getting alcohol. The war on guns is not going to stop people from getting guns. It just creates a black market, an underground economy. It doesn't make the problem better. It's the Streisand effect. By saying you can't have this, it actually provokes people to want more of it. And I wonder, just like in 2020, just two years ago, there was a run on guns and ammunition because the riots were happening over the summer. Of course, all these false flag events leading up to the election. And then around and after the election, more false flag events, more shrill voices crying from both sides about how terrible things were going to get. But we were told in December and January, if Joe Biden is elected, he's going to crack down on guns. He's going to take away your guns. So we all rushed out and bought more guns and more ammunition, and there was no 9mm shells on the shelves for months and months and months. Well, here we are two and a half years later, right before elections, and guess what? Mass shootings leading probably this summer into riots. More warnings from both sides. Joe Biden's going to take away your guns. The Republicans are in bed with Joe Biden. They want to take away your guns too. There's going to be another run on gun shops, another run on bullets. We keep being led down the same paths and we keep reacting the same way. But how many guns do you need? How many bullets do you need? 
How many swords? How many spears? How much training do you need in warfare, in self-defense? I'm not asking that question rhetorically. I'm not asking that in the negative. I'm asking that in the positive. How many? I trained with my coach this morning for an hour and 10 minutes. We rolled, we sparred for an hour and 10 minutes straight without stopping. New record. (laughs) And I'm a child, so I had to share that with you. Why? Because I hear these stories from law enforcement about how they were in a fight, in a ditch, in a foot of water, in four and a half feet of snow in February. They were fighting with with a felon who's made up his mind. I'm not going back to jail. So I'm willing willing to kill you right here, right now to escape. And they fought for 15, 20, 45 minutes with the perp. Were they prepared mentally and physically for that kind of a fight? Is anyone, if they don't train up and prepare for that kind of a fight? So the example that I use then is We had to stop because my coach had a class to teach. Otherwise, I would have kept going for another hour because that's my conditioning, both mentally and physically. I want to train, and I do train in such a way that I can fight for an hour or more nonstop at 80, 90% speed, 80, 90% intensity, so that if I'm ever forced to fight for my life or the life of someone else, I never have to worry about my mental or my physical stamina being depleted Because there's no bell, there's no tap out. We all know this. There's all these variables that you can't take into consideration when you're training in a gym, in a sterile, safe environment. All you can do is simulate it as close to reality as possible. And so I do. But that's the path I've chosen. And maybe it's the path you've chosen too. To embrace this ethos. To reject society and the culture that says masculinity is toxic. Masculinity is a negative. Masculinity is what makes villains out of men. But there is a philosophy behind what we do, whether we're aware of it or not. There is an ethos there, and it is old, and it is profound. And in a way, it's almost endless once you go down this path and you start thinking and reading and discussing and training. So whatever the martial art may be, there really is no end to it, except death, really. Because once you devote yourself to the martial art, you discover that the martial art is life. It informs and influences every aspect of your life, from your relationships to your work, even to the types of media that you choose to consume and how you present yourself on social media. So this ethos, the warrior ethos, this idea of a warrior culture, a warrior class, is both a narrow and a broad meaning. But ultimately, why are we doing it? So that everything and everyone who deserves help can get it. Because I never want anyone to feel as if no one's coming to help them. And it may not need to be a physical confrontation. It may simply be an intellectual or emotional confrontation that you defend and protect someone who is weak, who is vulnerable in that moment. Being a warrior in the broad sense then means having the strength and the passion to pursue this thing we call the martial arts. Not just for yourself, but for everyone that you interface with every day. 
And that's something else we don't consider very often anymore as a society. We hear a lot of talk the last two and a half years about what's good for everyone, what's good for society, what's good for the group, which really is just political speak for this is what's good for me, the politician, the influencer, the controller, the dictator. When I talk about what's good for everyone, I mean improve yourself so that you are ready to help anyone when they are in need with a specific view of people, neighbors, community, whatever it might be, family, to say, if you need me, I'm there for you. I will walk toward the danger rather than away from it. But not for myself, not to prove that I'm brave or I'm a big man or to get my name in the paper, but so that you can go home tonight and you can reattach yourself, link up with your family. That's what it's all about. The other. Loving the other, serving the other, sacrificing for the other. Because what is good for the other is then good for you. The well-being of society is our well-being. If society is sick and mentally ill, if it celebrates vice and perversion and profligacy, we all suffer no matter how brave, noble, courageous, or righteous we may be. So surfing on 20-foot waves or free climbing in the mountains can probably create similar results. The martial arts are a way not, quote-unquote, capital, the way. They don't have a monopoly over the body or over the spirit. Basketball, a drum circle, lifting weights. There are hundreds of possible physical vehicles for spiritual transformation. The way the Grateful Dead's percussionist Mickey Hart approaches drumming is a warrior's way. The way Phil Jackson coached the Chicago Bulls first and the Los Angeles Lakers later is as subtle and deep as the strategy of the greatest sword masters. The odysseys on foot undertaken by German visionary Werner Herzog embody the spirit of martial arts more than the actions of many martial artists. The same peak can be reached through hundreds of different paths. It's a very enlightenment statement, actually. Uh, Baruch Spinoza said that. But it is to say, I think, what he's getting at is this, is that there are many people who engage in the martial arts who never make the connection about the philosophical side of things. Now, you can get too far into the philosophical side of things, of course, and forget about the martial arts, the physical training part of it. But I think, again, it's all about balance, the mental and the physical. Engaging with the philosophy of the warrior ethos of martial arts along with the physical training that goes with it and finding the proper balance so that mentally and emotionally, you're on the same level as you are physically. And so when our physical training slips, in my experience anyways, the mental and emotional stuff slips as well. Whereas when I'm trained up and I'm at that point where I'm physically, mentally, and emotionally ready to fight, everything's humming along. Everything's working in tandem. It's all in concord, right? It's, it's just a well-oiled machine firing on all cylinders, as we say. But when one is out of whack, everything gets out of whack. I've been mentally disengaged during classes and got tapped out by people that never tapped me out because my mind wasn't there. And so my body was just kind of out there on its own. And likewise, I've been physically injured and my mind is acute, but you get caught because your body and your mind are not working in tandem. And if the body's not translating what the mind and the heart are doing, everything kind of gets bottlenecked. And so I think it's important if you're serious about martial arts 
to also take up the philosophy of martial arts. To just sit back, and I don't mean read books about it or watch endless documentaries and videos, just think about how jiu-jitsu or Muay Thai, for me, has informed and influenced your relationships and your whole work ethic and how you interface with other people and where you go to socialize now versus before you started and the types of media you choose to consume as a consequence of the changes you've made physically and emotionally and mentally because of jujitsu or because of boxing or kickboxing or Muay Thai or whatever it may be. How does that influence you when you go to the gym and lift weights? How does that influence you when you go hiking or go on vacation? Nonetheless, few things on earth deal with conflict in such a direct, touching way as the martial arts do. Contrary to other purely verbal philosophical systems, the philosophy of martial arts is not just an intellectual endeavor, and its gifts are not gained just through reading, contemplating, talking, or thinking about it. It is an athletic philosophy to be experienced through muscles and sweat as much as through the mind. <sighs> yeah. Contrary to other athletic disciplines, martial arts are not simply a sport in which scoring the highest number of points defines victory, are not an art form to be appreciated merely for its aesthetic value, and are not only a skill offering the tangible gifts of strength, flexibility, and dexterity. Think about how many people today you know, and maybe you struggle with this yourself. Is your body and your mind and your emotions functioning in a unity, or are they at odds with each other? are the three parts that make you you at war with each other? Are they out of sync with each other? And how then does that affect you every day? And what are you doing then to repair that, that damage, to bring everything back into a unity, everything working in unison? Martial arts bring us back to something much more primal, in the fighting arts, it is our own physical well-being that is on the line. The fear of violence, the fear of being the bullseye for an attack of overwhelming superior physical force. The fear that women, men, and animals alike feel when a stronger, meaner predator assigns them the role of the prey. These are the forces that martial arts play with. Something that everyone who ever lived and who ever will live experiences at some point. Even in a relatively safe society, even among people who probably will never have to face violence, it is presence. Its presence is very much alive. No matter how brilliant and sophisticated we get, in the back of our minds always looms the question of what could we do if attacked by a physical force that knows no common sense, doesn't listen to good words and can't be stopped by gentleness from school playgrounds to abusive marriages, from dark streets at night to our own very private nightmares, the theaters in which the prospect of physical conflict divides humanity into fearful prey or fighters are more than can be numbered. I was just talking with one of my students about this the other day. When I walk out the door, I have a general sense of anxiety about the world. I've said it before, I have a very low anthropology. I believe that everyone is essentially selfish and bent toward what is self-serving and therefore morally evil. So there's always for me this underlying tension of be aware of your surroundings, read people 
as they're coming toward you, assess the threat, and then make a judgment call. But talking with a student, a woman, five foot four inches tall, smaller woman, who has some rough patches in her past when she was younger, when she walks out the door, she has a very overt fear of men in particular. And because she's a smaller person, because she's uncomfortable around men because of her past, every man to her creates anxiety and fear. And for her then, Muay Thai and Jiu-Jitsu are training her not just in the physical actions of self-defense, but it's training her mind how to interface and engage with people that she fears to make a judgment, to assess the situation honestly and soberly, to push aside the, the mind that second guesses the gut intuition and to recognize that's a reality for her. That's never going to go away. But what we can do is put that fear and anxiety on a leash and we'll use Muay Thai and Jiu-Jitsu to do it. So that if there is an actual threat, she can make that gut decision. She can react to that by crossing the street or making eye contact with that individual and staring them down and letting them know, I am not prey. I am not for here for you to attack. And then train her up, not just in the physical techniques of Muay Thai and Jiu-Jitsu, but rather say, okay, here's Muay Thai in the gym, but here's what you want to do with this technique when it's on the street. Don't just kick me in the thigh, kick me in the crotch. Don't just teat me in the stomach, teat me in the crotch. Hit me with your head. You're smaller than I am. Bring your head up and hit me in the face with your head from underneath. It's the hardest part of your body. Don't hit people with your hands. Don't grab at people. Don't try and body hug people. If you get there, go to close guard. But how do you not get there? What are the things that you can do, the intangibles, the invisible jujitsu that you can do to this individual before it ever comes to physical contact? Because there's a lot. That's all a part of the martial arts. That's what I think he means by addressing the philosophical side of the martial arts, the intellectual and emotional side of this. Because it's not just enough to train, in my opinion. It's to apply the training to your life, which is the philosophical side of things. Or on the theological side of the house, what does it mean to love your neighbor as yourself if you cannot protect your neighbor from evil? Is it love to stand passively by, impotent to prevent a person bent on harming, hurting the person, taking their property, their body, or their life from them. Is that loving your neighbor as yourself? Is that serving God? Unfortunately, over the last 70 or 80 years, the church has really pushed passivity on Christians and taught Christians to essentially be wallflowers, to be doormats, to say, hey, you're suffering for Jesus. Just take it. Your reward is great in heaven. Okay, that's you as an individual. That's you turning the other cheek. But what about your wife, your husband, your children, your neighbor, your coworker, your fellow students in the classroom? What are you going to do to protect them? What are you going to do to love them from what is approaching this imminent threat, this predator? Because the churches have pushed passivity, pushed Christians to behave and be nice, to not be accused of hypocrisy or judgmentalism, it has created an entire ethos of pitiful, self-pitying victims who, in my opinion then, turn a blind eye to the evil in the world and say, well, we'll pray. 
We'll pray for those people. Great, you should pray. Ultimately, God is in charge. God is good. Pray to God that he would intervene, that he would step in, that he would do what he promises to do for his people. But you are also an instrument of the Holy Spirit. You are an instrument of God's love in the world. You are an instrument of the Creator. And therefore, we need, in my opinion, more Joshua's. We need more Caleb's. We need more David warriors. Dare I say, we even need more Samson's. More Barak's. We need more warrior priests. But they're not going to come and be raised up within the church because the clergy have been emasculated in the churches. The clergy have been castrated through the institution that is called the church. Women predominantly run churches nowadays. And therefore, there's a lot of feminine energy and estrogen in churches. And I'm not putting that down. The most important people in my congregation are women, and I could not be a pastor in this church without them. But that's only because so many men in my church are derelict in their duties as men, as Christian men, as Christian mentors for the boys and the girls of this church. And I see this everywhere. I have traveled the length and the breadth of North America, Mexico, and Central America. I see it everywhere, even in more traditional cultures like rural Mexico and Guatemala. Men are not showing up. Fathers are not showing up. And when they do, they're not warriors. They don't embrace a warrior ethos. They don't inculcate love in the way that I just described it as standing up for the other, defending and protecting the other. Instead, we're told, well, the Joshua's, the Caleb's, the David's, the Sam- that's, that's thousands of years ago. That's the old world. Those are the ancient people. That's not the way it is anymore. Really? You ever read the Gospels? Is Jesus passive? No. Jesus isn't even passive when they arrest him and torture him and nail him to a cross. He tells them that he's going to allow them to do this. He is anything but passive. Jesus is a wild, untamed God. Because God is a wild, untamed God who, by the way, chooses wild, untamed people to call his people. It's the world that wants us tame and domesticated and put on a leash. Because those that are against God, those that promote immorality as morality, vice as virtue, evil as good, the last thing they want are godly warriors in society. That's the worst thing that you could hope for if that's your trajectory, if that's your program. Because not only am I a warrior, but I believe that I'm an instrument of God and therefore righteous and good and holy. And I fight for a righteous, good, and holy God against evil. Well, that's the last thing that an evil man wants because God forbid that man is out there doing that and other people see that and learn from his example to imitate it. If you don't believe what I'm saying is true, just look at culture. What is the primary focus of attack? God, the churches, family, anything that's pre-modern, virtue, morality, righteousness, justice, charity, courage, bravery, temperance, wisdom, on and on it goes. If it's just my opinion, if I'm just ranting to rant, then why are the things I'm talking about constantly targeted and attacked? in the media, in schools, 
even around dinner tables, which ironically, most people don't eat at dinner tables anymore. So I mean that in a general sense. Why? Well, exactly what I said. Our society, by and large, has embraced immorality, perversion, profligacy, vice. It elevates anti-heroes, tears down heroes, castrates and emasculates boys and men, calls us toxic, extremist, right-wing, white supremacists, what else? Nazis, of course. And on and on it goes, which to me is just a lot of projection. It says less about me and more about you. You're making a confession of your own sin. But what martial arts does is it, it levels everything. It takes all the peaks off and raises all the valleys. And it sends us back to something primal, something true, something objectively real about each of us. Which is that there are predators and there are prey. And there always will be and there always has been. And it's your choice whether to be predator or prey. But for someone to assign you the role of prey, that, that I take exception to. Because it's predators that do that. And there's quite a few predators roaming through our society at present, treating us as prey animals. And I don't know how long we can remain meek. I don't know how long we can simply talk before we have to act. I don't know what it's going to take. I keep waiting for something, some sign, someone to come along or, or say, hey, now is the time to stop talking, and now is the time to start doing. It's happening in clusters, small groups here and there, but not on a social, cultural scale, where I see tens of millions of people doing it. That's really what I want to see. I know we've gone from 7 million homeschoolers to 70 million homeschoolers just in the last three years. That's phenomenal. I'd like to see even more. We have to change society. We have to change our communities. We have to change our homes. It's up to us. No one's going to send us tens of billions of dollars in aid to do it. No one's going to send the military in to help us. No one's going to send in charitable organizations or humanitarian organizations to build up our communities. If we don't do it ourselves, local, state, and federal governments aren't going to do it for us. They have their own interests, and it's not us. It's simply enriching themselves at our expense. And I think we can all agree that that is explicitly, overtly clear at this point. They're not really hiding it anymore. So the very physical nature of our existence, he writes, makes it impossible to completely escape this primordial fear. Maybe we can ignore it and maybe we can live fulfilling lives without ever having to face it. But this fear, however silent and dormant it may be, is something that always lives within us. Through practice of the fighting arts, the martial artist stares his own fear in the eyes. He challenges them every time when facing an opponent. Every fight is a battle against our own limits and weaknesses. Much like a doctor injects a disease into a patient in order to allow him or her to build antibodies and be immunized against this very same disease, martial arts use small-scale violence in order to immunize its practitioners against the fear of violence. Physical aggression, 
the most dramatic, obvious, and scary manifestation of conflict is the training tool used in the martial arts to lose all fear of conflict. The moment fear, big F fear, begins to lose its grip on us, every instant of daily existence can become more peaceful and enjoyable. A 50-pound weight is lifted off our shoulders. Only then does it become possible for serenity to come dancing into our lives. Thanks to the confidence developed through training, this serenity runs deep and cannot be easily threatened by the fear of conflicts, verbal or physical that they may be. The martial artist doesn't chat about spirituality, he or she puts it into action. Yes. Yes, yes, yes. Just like Stoicism, a philosophy that is intended for immediate action. Philosophy is not to be debated, as Marcus Aurelius says, it is to be acted. Likewise, it wasn't until I started jiu-jitsu and then Muay Thai that I actually grew to enjoy and have peace regarding my sobriety. Because talking about it wasn't doing it for me at a certain point. I've talked about that before. I needed to physically vent. I needed to flush out the pipes. And martial arts gave me that. It got that out. It allowed me to confront my fears dressed up as my training partner. And there it is. Each of us has a big F fear or fears that follow us around like the ghosts of Christmas's past or future or present or all three at one time. Some of, for some of us, it's a holy racket in our homes with all the ghosts floating around, haunting us, regret, anxiety, worry, guilt, shame, blame, fear. So how do we confront that? How do we put that fear on a leash? How do we, how do we live? A bird just flew right into my office window, scared the crap out of me. Um, how do we, <laughs> big F fear, there you go. How do we, how do we learn how to be wild and untamed? As I was just saying about God, how do we learn, how do we train ourselves up to be wild and untamed while simultaneously gentle and kind? I have a, a hoodie. It's my favorite hoodie. It was given to me by my friend Bonnie. It says aggressive gentleman on it. And I think that is what I aspire to every day. I want to be aggressive, but I want to be a gentleman. I am wild and untamed by nature. God made me this way. And so what martial arts does for me is it allows me to be peaceful, to be serene within the midst of being wild and untamed. Because, you know, it's kind of nice to have relationships with people that they're not constantly anxious about you attacking them or saying something that's going to embarrass them in public. It's good to be a gentleman when it's time to be a gentleman. But when it's time to be aggressive, are you ready? Have you trained in aggression? Intellectual, verbal, physical, emotional? My favorite people in the world are wild and untamed people. That doesn't necessarily mean that they're partying or they live recklessly, they break the rules, they're lot. No, it simply means that they're wild, untamed people. They're curious, they're creative, they're expressive. They speak their mind. They're living. They're alive. Look at the way God made the world and then look what we do to try and improve upon God's design. Look at a forest. When we see a forest, we see chaos. But that's how God orders the universe. He calls that order. 
When we make a forest, we plant trees in straight lines at 45 degree angles for miles in every direction. We want to pave the entire planet over. That's how we improve upon God and his creation. But if you look at creation, it is wild and it is untamed because it is a reflection of the creator. But it's only wild and untamed because we are selfish and we can't accept objective reality as it is. Instead, we accept reality as we would have it be. And so we are always at war with reality. And therefore, we are always at war with God and what he has created. And for me, anyways, then martial arts is that dichotomy of this is the world as it is. It is wild and untamed and violent. But selfish people use that and they weaponize that to prey upon others. And so in God's world, a world without sin, we wouldn't need martial arts. We wouldn't need violence to protect the weaker person. But we don't live in that world. We live in the world of promise of what is to come. We live in faith. And so in the meanwhile, we are instruments. We are instruments of love. We are instruments of faithfulness, fidelity, and charity, and hope. And when we embrace those theological virtues of faith, hope, and charity, because that's really what it means by love, it means charity. I believe anyways, we must also ask and pray that God would make us ready to be meek when it's time to be meek and to not be meek when it's time to not be meek, to be aggressive gentlemen or gentlewomen. This is not an aesthetic pursuit. This is not just a spiritual pursuit and it's not just a physical pursuit. It is mind, body, and soul. It is the dichotomy that we seek peace by training in violence because we want to live in a peaceful world, but there are others who wish to do violence to us and violence to those who cannot protect themselves. And so there's the word then, spirituality. Many martial artists are superficially infatuated with the mystic halo surrounding their arts. While just as many martial artists label anything having to do with spirituality as mere superstition, both factions make a huge mistake. They look at spirituality as something strange, esoteric, removed from daily life. They look at it as if it were some faraway dimension wrapped in clouds of mystery and incense, something with no connection to the most mundane aspects of life. Forgetting that true spirituality is not aesthetic, nor is it against life. Both its friends and its foes call it quote-unquote spiritual, but what they call spiritual, what is remote and beyond the material world, that's what they're referring to. But spirituality is just the opposite. It is the quintessential quintessence of life. It is a way of waking up, of walking, of smiling, of dancing. Again, Ubermensch, according to Nietzsche, means free spirit. It's the best translation I've found for what Ubermensch means. It also throws off the derogatory use of the term by the Nazis. It means not Superman, it means free spirit. I think that's what he's describing here. When we talk about the spirituality, we mean, how does one become a free spirit? That's the martial arts. They unlock that. So spiritual are those who are not satisfied with surviving, but want to turn daily experiences into sources of ecstasy, literally to stand outside of oneself, to be beside yourself. Ecstasis. Under this light, the spirituality of martial arts is not the exclusive dominion of the Eastern traditions that have given birth to many fighting arts. Speaking about Shambhala Buddhist teachings, the renowned Tibetan monk Chogyam Trungpa has a beautiful thing to say, quote, 
The Shambhala teachings are founded on the premise that there is a basic human wisdom that can help to solve the world's problems. This wisdom does not belong to any one culture or religion, nor does it come only from the West or the East. Rather, it is a tradition of human warriorship that has existed in many cultures and many times throughout history. Yes, it's just wisdom. <laughs> it's objectively true or it's not. It's wisdom based on human experience. So the same words could be applied to martial arts. It is not necessary to be Asian in order to enjoy martial arts, just as it is not necessary to be an American Indian in order to appreciate the power of a sweat lodge. It is character that matters, not ethnicity. I once happened to listen to Wallace Black Elk, a Lakota medicine man, as he spoke about American Indian religion, expressing virtually the same ideas stated by Trungpa. There are things that cannot be caged within the limits of geographic or racial boundaries. They are paths open to anyone whose heart beats for something more than simple inertia. Merrily, 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 life is but a dream, just drifting along on the river, carried by the current. Existing is what I call it. Neither alive nor dead, but simply existing. So just as with any path, martial arts can transport people to thousands of different places. Everything depends on the destination chosen by the individual who walks along the path. Martial arts could be used for something, for nothing, or for everything. We can receive only as much water as our cup will hold. Like the genie in the magic lamp, martial arts can only give us what we have the courage to desire. Exactly. That's the end of the introduction, by the way. So I will end with this. When I started jujitsu, almost seven years ago now, I've talked about it before. I just wanted to make it to two classes a week, two hours a week. That's it, total. Now, almost seven years later, I train two-a-days, like today. Saturday, I'll do two hours in the morning of sparring and training, and then do a two-hour seminar an hour after that. And then I'll teach my students that night for two hours. I didn't just all of a sudden decide I was going to do it and then did it. Instead, I chose a path for myself. And I stuck to the path. And I surrounded myself with people who could help me stay on the path and would walk with me on the path. And because of my coaches, because of my teammates, in particular because of my family, I am able to talk about these things today with you. Because without them, I am nothing. And I wouldn't have gotten here. I'm certain of that. So my sobriety, both mental sobriety, physical sobriety, my serenity and peace, everything about me today was given to me by God's grace through jujitsu and Muay Thai. Not just the technique though, not just the martial arts, but the martial artists that I encountered along the way. And so I am grateful for you for listening to this, for participating in this, for texting me and DMing me and emailing me, encouraging me. Because it encourages me to know that it encourages you, these topics and discussing these matters. But I'm here because of you, just as I'm here because of my coaches and teammates and my family. So without you, without them, I couldn't do what I do. That's all a part of the martial artist's path. And so thank you for that. Thank you for being out there. And I hope in my own small way, I've helped you too. 
and I've helped you stay on the path, and I've walked with you on that path, even if I'm a disembodied voice on the internet. Because that's what we're all here for anyways, to help each other, to better each other, to help each other grow, and to help each other stay on the path. The warrior's path in this, in this instance. So thank you for that. Thank you for being there. Thank you for everything you do for the podcast. So that being said, I'll end it at one hour, which is a half an hour longer than I planned to go. But I'm long-winded and I think out loud, so I think you know that by now. Otherwise, as always, I'll come back Sunday with Sermonition Sunday. Thank you uh, for the listener who sent me a voice message encouraging me to keep on going with the Sermonition Sunday sermons, that you enjoyed that, that it was beneficial to you, and I appreciate that. Thank you for that. So with that, I'll talk to you, God willing, and the crick don't rise on Sunday with Sermonition Sunday. All right, Space Monkeys, peace.